I don't remember the young man's name or whether I had invited him to worship that day or somebody else had, but I do remember that he was there as a, a non-Christian who had not been in one of our worship assemblies before, and, and I was excited that he was there and happy that I had the opportunity to sit next to him during the worship service. But I'll never forget his reaction when the Lord's Supper began to be served as the trays began to be passed. We were sitting fairly near the front, as all of us college students normally did, and so you could kind of see the progress of things, and, and I noticed that he started getting really nervous. And, and the closer that that first tray with the bread on it got to him, the more anxious he got. He, he began to physically squirm in his seat as though something terrible were about to happen. And when it finally got to him, he took it and he just handed it to me just as quickly as he could as though it were burning his skin. And then he did the same thing when, when the cup was passed. And when the service was over, I was talking to him and he, he acknowledged his anxiety and he said it was because he didn't know what he was supposed to do. He said, I didn't know if I was supposed to take that or not and I didn't know if if people would be offended if I did or if people would be offended if I didn't. And I didn't want to do the wrong thing, and, and he said it just made me feel really scared. And I felt very badly about that because I realized that I should have explained to him beforehand what was going to happen so he wouldn't have that anxiety and that it was his choice whether he partook of it or not and that he wasn't going to offend anybody whether he did or whether he didn't. But I was a new Christian myself, and I really didn't think about all of that. But to me, it all seemed so normal. But to him, it all seemed so strange. And I think it does to a lot of people. I think to a lot of people, communion is kind of an odd ritual. To the Gentiles in the first century world, they heard all the talk about eating flesh and drinking blood, and they thought those people are cannibals. And that was the rumor that got spread about the early church. Others just saw food. They didn't understand any more than that. The Roman governor Pliny wrote a letter to the emperor Trajan, and he said, here's what I've been able to find out about the Christians. They get together on the, on the first day of the week, and, and he said they uh, greet one another, and they, they sing a hymn to Christ as to a god. And then he said then they... they break up their assembly, and then they come back together and they partake of food, he said, but of a very ordinary and innocent kind. That's all he saw, because it was just a meal. So what is this odd ritual that we go through Sunday after Sunday, where we eat a, a morsel of bread, and, and you'll notice since COVID, it's gotten smaller and smaller, <laughs> and, and we take just this very small sip of this cup, and, and what is that all about, and, and why is it so important to us? Well, it helps to know how that all got started. You notice in the reading in Matthew that when Jesus met with his disciples for what we call the Last Supper, it was originally a Passover meal. It was a, the annual celebration of God delivering the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. It was that time when they would both uh, remember and reenact what God had done. 
in delivering them and celebrate that and be grateful for it. And, and the heart of that celebration was this meal. And the heart of the meal was the lamb as the main course. But the lamb's function wasn't just food because God had instructed them to take the, the blood of that lamb and smear it on the doorposts and the lintel of their houses. And that would be a sign that they believed God. That would be a sign that they trusted his promises. And he said, when I see the blood, then I will pass over your houses and none of the firstborn of your houses will die, but of the firstborn of the Egyptians, they will all die. So it wasn't just about remembering, it was also about reliving that event that had made them who they were. It had made them the chosen people of God. Now you fast forward that to the time of Jesus, and Jesus was a devout Jew. That's one of the things that's very clear about him from reading the Gospels. He was a devout law-observant Jew, and as all devout law-observant Jews did, he annually participated in the Passover meal. He must have participated in about 30 of them in his lifetime, but this was going to be the last one because within just a few days he would go to the cross so during that meal, he took some of the unleavened bread that was a standard part of the Passover menu, and, and he broke it, and he distributed it to his men, and he said, eat this, this is my body. And there were four cups of wine that were part of that ceremony, and he took the third of those cups, and he passed that around to them, and he said, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And at that moment, there was a transformation that took place in the Passover meal. It was no longer just about Israel and what had happened so long ago. It was about Jesus, and it was about them, and it was about the present, and it was about the future. And it's about all of us because it's about his body and his blood. And, and so that's what they did. And, and so what started out as the Passover meal was the Last Supper, and that got transformed into what we know as the Lord's Supper that's, that's also sometimes called communion. And frequently in the early church was called the breaking of bread. They just kind of symbolized the whole thing, the breaking of bread. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 said that after those approximately 3,000 people were baptized on the day of Pentecost, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. This became a focal point of their lives. They devoted themselves to that. Acts 20 and verse 7 says later when he was on one of his missionary journeys that Paul met with the, the church in the city of Troas, and he said, on the, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. But notice what it says, that they had gathered for what purpose? For the breaking of the bread. That's why they were doing what they were doing. We see another reflection of that practice in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning of verse 17. When Paul chastised the church at Corinth because their worship assemblies had become occasions of division instead of occasions of unity because they weren't waiting for one another. And the, the ones who were 
wealthier apparently and could bring the food and bring there earlier were just going ahead with their meal because at that point it was a meal. And, and the poor who didn't have their, their time wasn't their own and, and they couldn't bring anything were arriving later only to find out that it was all over. And so it was creating a, a divide in the church instead of helping to draw the church together. But Christians have been observing this supper ever since. 2,000 years now. We've been doing this Sunday after Sunday. Now over time, some interesting things have happened to this meal. For one thing, it stopped being a meal. You notice that in the Passover setting, it was a full meal. But it stopped being that, and, and it got reduced to just what we refer to as the emblems of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup. And that's largely due to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11, because when the Corinthians were just sort of distorting the communion into nothing but a common meal, Paul said, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? If that's, if that's all you're interested in, if that's all you're going to do, just do that at home. And as a result of that, the practice of having the bread and the cup in the context of a larger meal kind of fell away, and it, it got reduced to what we know today, simply the emblems. And that, that's what Jesus had emphasized after all, and so I think people reasoned, well, you know, we don't have to have the meal, and we don't. But that was one thing that was different from the time of Jesus. Also, throughout history, some began to make significant, uh, see significance in the Lord's Supper that Scripture never, never gave it. Pretty early on, some people began to refer to it as a sacrifice that we offer to God with the emblems literally turning into the body and blood of Jesus. Not symbolically, but literally becoming the body and the blood of Jesus. During the Protestant Reformation, some suggested that a weekly observance of the meal was, was too often, that that was going to make it become commonplace. That was going to make it lose significance. And so some of them suggested, let's just do it once a quarter, just four times a year. That will make it more special. And so that was the practice of the Protestant reformers. Since the Reformation, uh, it is still observed by some on a quarterly basis, but by some only on holidays, such as Christmas or Easter, and, and by others almost never at all. And in some quarters, the Lord's Supper has lost out to Easter as the means of celebrating Jesus' death and resurrection, which is kind of ironic because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, and we don't, we don't actually read about an, an Easter celebration at all in, in Scripture, and yet that has displaced the Lord's Supper <clears throat> in the thinking and practice of many. But even among those of us who still observe the Lord's Supper every week, it often is subject to misunderstanding. I've heard some people speak of the Lord's Supper as nothing other than a requirement. It's just something Jesus said to do, and so we have to do it. Uh, we have to do that in order to be right. We have to do it in order to be scriptural. And if you try to talk to them about what about the communion aspect, who are we communing with, it just kind of goes over their heads because they're not really thinking about communing with anybody either with God or with other Christians. They're just doing something that we're required to do. Some regard the Lord's Supper as an act of penitence, that when you, when you take the Lord's Supper, somehow your sins are forgiven. And Scripture never makes that connection. I'm not sure where that idea ever arose, but, but some people think that way. 
And in spite of the richness of the imagery that's connected with the Lord's Supper in Scripture, some of them think only of, of as a it's only a memorial, and it is a memorial, but it's more than that. But some just think of it as a memorial. It's kind of a week-to-week <clears throat> funeral, kind of an ongoing funeral that we have for Jesus every week. And don't really think about the aspect of his resurrection and his second coming, as Paul pointed us to. It's often seen as only a time for personal reflection by some rather than as an expression of, of group worship, as something that we do together, something we do because we are together, because we are the body of Christ. But others see it as simply a, a time of personal reflection, of just me thinking about the Lord. For others, I'm afraid maybe it's merely a habit, and we don't think much about it at all, about why we do it. There is obviously, I think, a need for us to rethink the Lord's Supper and what it's about in the context of Christian worship. So let's ask that question, what is it about? What is happening when we eat the bit of bread and drink that sip of juice? Or what should be happening if I had known what to tell my young college friend so long ago? If I had known how to explain that to him, which I didn't, but if I had, what could I have said? What should I have said that would point to him the significance of what we were doing so that he would be better prepared, that we would all be better prepared? Well, I should have told him that we were remembering. We're remembering. We're remembering Jesus and his death on the cross for our sins because he said, do this in remembrance of me. This bread is my body. This cup is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. He said, but why? Because he sacrificed himself for us to give us life everlasting. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, Paul says this, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the amazing thought about the cross. God didn't wait until we had shaped up, until we had gotten our act together. But Christ died for us while we were still sinners. And we're remembering that when we eat the supper. We're remembering also that his sacrifice imposes an obligation in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul said, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We are remembering that I am not my own. Each of us are not our own. We, we individually and we collectively belong to Christ. And so we have an obligation to honor him with all that we are and all that we have. And in everything that we do and in everything that we say, glorify God, in your body, he said, being saved by Jesus' death has ethical and moral implications, and the supper reminds us of that. Just like Passover in the ancient world, remembering carried not the idea just of, of recalling, but of reliving. It wasn't just a matter of thinking, oh yes, that's what happened so long ago. It was a matter of making it fresh, making it new for yourself and for the current generation. And that, that's what we're doing with the Lord's Supper. We're reliving it. We're making it fresh. We're making it new for each of us. But we remember. 
what Jesus did. Philip Slade, in a, a paper that he wrote on the Lord's Supper, tells a story about David Lipscomb, the founder of Lipscomb University. He said that David Lipscomb's brother said, my, my brother David was not an emotional man. He said, in fact, I only saw him cry one time in his whole life. And that was when he was presiding at the table, serving the Lord's Supper, and said, as he began to talk about the death of Jesus and about his sacrifice for our sins, he said he began to weep. And he wept so uncontrollably that he was not able to continue. And someone else had to step in and take over. He just couldn't continue because of the weeping, but he was deeply moved. You see, the significance of the supper was not lost on him. He was moved because he knew that he was one for whom Christ died. Well, if I had known, I should have told my friend that we were also were renewing a commitment. You notice that Jesus said in Matthew 26 that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. God had a covenant with Israel and there were times when they were not faithful to that covenant and it had to be renewed. They had to, he had to restate the terms of it and the people had to restate whether or not they were intending to follow that covenant and be, be faithful to God and be faithful to the, the terms of the covenant. And in the same way, we renew our covenant as we partake of the Lord's Supper. When we drink that cup, we're reminding ourselves and recommitting ourselves to be faithful to the covenant that, that we now have because we know that without it, we know that without it, that we are hopelessly lost. If I'd known what to say to my young friend, I should have told him, we were also proclaiming the death of Jesus and his resurrection until he comes. That's one of the things that we're doing. Paul quotes Jesus as saying, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. Do you see the implications of that? The implications of that are that he's not dead, that he's still living. The implication of that is that we believe firmly that he is coming again, that there will come a time when he returns in order to to call his redeemed home with him and to judge the world that has turned away from him? We are proclaiming that death until he comes. Every time we gather to eat the bread and drink the cup, we are declaring what we believe. We are declaring that Christ died for our sins and we're declaring our faith that he arose from the dead and we are declaring our faith that he is coming again and that we believe that he is still alive. We are doing what F.F. F. Bruce calls a visible word. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It's a visible word. It's a proclamation by act. We're proclaiming that the final great act of our salvation has not occurred yet, but the conviction that it will when he returns. And that's why the Lord's Supper is always the centerpiece of our worship, because it is about Jesus and about what he has done. It isn't about how well we sing or how eloquently we pray it, it isn't about any of those things. It's, it's about what Jesus has done. And we're declaring that. We're proclaiming that. 
That's why it's so important for each of us to take part in it so that we can all preach that sermon every week, that acted word. Somebody asked one time, well, who are we proclaiming to? If we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, to whom do we make that proclamation? And that's a good question. We're making that proclamation, first of all, to the whole world. To the whole world. Every time we meet together for worship, we are declaring, we are stating by our actions, this is what we believe. You know, social commentators have for a number of years noted the decline in public worship. And that's a serious sign. You know why? It's a serious sign because it means that fewer and fewer people are willing to openly declare their faith in the Savior. Fewer and fewer people are willing to stand up and say, this is what I believe, even to the point of sometimes leaving out the supper. But then others just don't come to worship at all. And as a result of that, they refuse to stand up and be counted. They may not have renounced the faith in Christ, but they refuse to proclaim it. They refuse to proclaim it. We are proclaiming to the world. We are also proclaiming to each other. So much of our worship has this one another aspect to it. Paul told us to sing to one another, speak to one another, and make melody in our hearts as, as we're singing to the Lord. But we're speaking to each other and we're encouraging each other in singing. We're doing the same thing in the Lord's Supper. We speak to one another. We urge one another to love and good works. And in the, the supper, we are reminding each other of who we are and of what our mission is in this world. Our mission in this world is not just to come to church and then go home and be nice people. Our mission in this world is to declare the Lord's death until he comes. We're also making proclamation to our children. Our children are a very special audience for this proclamation. There are those who say that little children don't belong in worship and they'd like to exclude them from it. I disagree. Though they may not understand everything that goes on or everything that is, that is said, it's instructive for them to see adults showing reverence and awe that we talked about last week. As we eat the supper, as we worship together and they observe that. You know, children learn a lot more from what they see than from what you tell them. They're much more attracted to acted lessons than they are to verbal ones. And so they see the reverence of their elders and they see the respect that is shown and the awe that is shown. And they hear the story about Jesus over and over and over again. And this builds in them that concept, that understanding. This is who we are. This is what life is all about. And it gives us that opportunity to teach them that same reverence and respect and awe that they ought to have for Jesus and for what he has done. That Sunday that my college friend got so nervous over the Lord's Supper, I wish I'd known. I wish I'd known enough to tell him all those things. I wish I'd known, not, not just to alleviate his fears, but, but in order to be able to convey to him something of the, the content of the faith. I wish I'd known how to express that to him, but I, I was a new believer myself, and I, I didn't really have the words to do it. I didn't know how. 
But I do now, and so do you. So with all of the reverence and joy and gratitude that we can muster, let's remember what Jesus has done for us. Let's renew our commitment to the covenant for which he died. And let's proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Sing song number three.